0: Good morning again everyone Uh, morning and uh, again glad to see everyone here and my mom's here today so say hi to mom ever say hey mom (laughs) I love embarrassing her Uh, really glad you're here mom Um, so this is the second sermon in the series on life together the book life together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer you may or may not be reading it you'd like to read it we do have copies in the Christian Formation Office and we have these studies going along with it. Um, books and Bible, the class I teach at 10.30 with women on Fridays. Uh, we're, going over books, uh, we're going over the book Life Together, and also, as I mentioned before, the Bruce will be teaching at 10.30 and 12.15 on the book. But this chapter this week is on, uh, is on the day together. Last week, I talked about community and what the idea of community can mean, and this week, We look at this second chapter, the day together, the day with others. Why do we do this? Why do we get together like this? Why do we have these songs and these scriptures and these prayers that we share with one another? Bonhoeffer gives us a few reasons why, and we're going to take a look at that today. But before we do, let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears. Give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing obey. Oh, man. I can remember the summer that I learned how to swim. I was a grown-up at the time. I learned how to swim because I made the boastful statement that I was going to do an Ironman triathlon and I didn't know how to swim. And so I quickly learned that I would not be doing an Ironman triathlon. But I would do a sprint triathlon. And in a sprint triathlon, you have to do a quarter of a mile of swimming, which may not seem like much if you're a swimmer or if you're walking the dog. But if you're just trying to get that far in a lake with all of these other weekend warriors trying to push you down into the water. It seems like a really far length to swim. And so I really worked hard at it. I got in the pool and I got a lot of tips from my church members about not drowning and escaping from sharks. I think they were just trying to scare me. And I worked really hard and I still couldn't pick it up. So you know what I did? I took swimming lessons. I went and I took swimming lessons and that didn't go very well either. My instructor was one of these 22-year-old guys that came out of the womb and you just know he knew how to swim. Very humbling experience. Every time he'd show me a piece of technique, I'd look between his hands to see if there was webbing there. That's the kind of swimmer that he seemed to be. But whatever he had in swimming ability, he lacked in interpersonal skills. Our very first session, he told me to float. Just float. And I tried and I sank. And I said, this is why I'm here. And he said, well, just, just float. and he And I tried and I sank again. And for the third time, he said, just float. And I tried and I sank and he came over to me and he yelled in my face. He said, relax, relax. And then he took me by the head and he pushed my head down into the water, which to me is on the opposite end of the relaxation spectrum. from hot tea, you know? (laughs) Even when I did something well, this swim instructor, he would say something that made me want to throttle him. I think the best compliment that I ever received from this guy was, that's not so bad. And my wife will attest to this because we took these lessons together. And I know you will never believe this, but he had all kinds of nice things to say to her. (laughs) But then in one of our last sessions, he said something profound, and he didn't even know that he said it. He noticed something in my stroke, if you can call it that, something about my hand sinking. And he said, you're in the water, and you're trying to hold yourself up, but there's nothing there to hold on to. You're trying to hold yourself up. But there's nothing there to hold on to. And I thought to myself two things. First, I thought, don't you know I'm a preacher? And if you say things like that, you're going to end up in a sermon. (laughs) And the second thing I thought was, but I am sinking. And what should I do about that? if you don't want me to hold myself up where do I find the power to keep from sinking because I am sinking and on behalf of a a congregation of people people I get the privilege to speak to on a regular basis people who sink into debt into melancholy into fear people who sink into ill health on behalf of all of them where do we find the power if we can't hold ourselves up if there's nothing to hold on to where do we find the power to keep from sinking i wanted to ask him that but i thought that might intimidate him And so I didn't ask my irksome instructor all of that. That question, right, is better left. That question of power is better left for a pastor, for a theologian, for someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. What are we supposed to do when we just keep sinking? In Life Together, he says, what we call our life our troubles, our guilt, is by no means the whole of our reality. Our life, our need, our guilt, and our deliverance are there in the Scriptures because it pleased God to act for us there. It is only there that we will be helped, only in the Holy Scriptures Do we get to know our own story? And he would know. Bonhoeffer would know a lot about sinking. He was being pulled down in a whirlpool that offered the kind of current that we could hardly imagine. Right? Important to remember that he lived in the period after World War II, or in and around World War II. And it's important to remember that after World War I, Germany was in a state of complete misery. Every aspect of life was difficult, and they didn't seem to have any way out. And it is in 1933 that Adolf Hitler is elected into that climate of desperation. And by 1939, The country is in this position of great might, and so Hitler, it was believed, had lifted them out of this sinkhole. And so this is why those that sought to upend Hitler faced an uphill battle, and not just a military one, but a theological one as well, right? Because Hitler claimed and had others claiming for him that he was doing the redemptive work assigned to God. So there was a theological task to attend to in responding to this dictator, to this demagogue. And it was into that climate that the Confessing Church was born. Karl Barth was part of that church. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was part of that church. And it was dedicated to maintaining that sovereignty, the power to lift us up when we're sinking, that power belongs to God and not to any demagogue. What we call our life, what you call your life, your troubles and your guilt, Is by no means the whole of your reality. Your life, your need, your guilt, and your deliverance, it's there in the Holy Scriptures. And so you can see why for Bonhoeffer, in this week's chapter of Life Together, he recommends Scripture and singing and prayer, and coming together like this for worship, not just to check a box for your week, not to contribute to some personal piety program that you're on, not just to make sure that people will see you as a good Christian. He wants you to dedicate time. He wants us to do that in our lives together because there is actual power in it. There is actual power, uplifting power, in reading scripture together, in praying together, in singing, in hearing people sing. There is power to be uplifted in all of that. That's why we do this. And it's true. And because it's true, it threatens the demagogue, right? It threatens the one that wants to make you think that it's actually them, not any of those things, that can lift you up when you're sinking. It's that kind of truth that got Paul Schneider, another member of the Confessing Church, martyred by the Nazis in 1939. His dedication to all of that, to that real power, led him to excommunicate Nazis from his church, and made him the first Protestant minister to face martyrdom at that time. But demagogues have been terrified by this truth for a long, long time. We know this because we know about the crucifixion, right? But we don't have to go that far back to be reminded. We don't even actually have to leave Germany to be reminded of what this truth does to people in power, because we know of a man named Martin Luther, right? Martin Luther kicked off the Reformation by delivering some gospel truths to the Roman Catholic Church in 1521, which led to a period of him hiding out for his life in Wartburg Castle. Now, while he was there, he didn't have a whole lot to do, and so to try to stay busy and himself away from the pope's spies he did what any of us would do he went ahead and translated the new testament into german from the original greek naturally you remember the gutenberg press was invented not too long before this and so this distribution of his work would mark the first time that ordinary people could access the scriptures without the learned class." Huge. A few years later, an Oxford-trained priest named William Tyndale took to the task of translating the Bible into English. But as he did, he found himself realizing that some of the ways that they'd understood the Bible before, some of the translations that had been passed along by the people in power needed to be altered some that those translations had benefited the people at the top end of the hierarchy. And so when he made those changes, go figure, the people in power felt threatened and had Tyndale imprisoned. Ultimately, he was strangled and burned at the stake. As an aside, since Tyndale's version just wouldn't do what the royalty needed it to do, Eighty years later, James I assembled a group of scholars to put together an approved version, which would not include what he called Tyndale's pestilent glosses, which is how we have the King James Version of the Bible. But you can see why getting the Bible into people's hands is threatening to folks in power, right? What if they go back? What if the people not only get it in their hands, but what if they read it? What if they just read the first gospel written, the gospel of Mark? What if they just read that? Not only that, what if they just read the first chapter in the first gospel? Not only that, what if they just read the first verse in the first chapter in the first gospel? Right there in the first verse, what's Jesus called? The Son of God. The Bruce, who gets called the Son of God? Caesar. That's who gets called the Son of God. This is an affront to power in the first verse, in the first chapter, in the first gospel. What if they keep reading and they get to the 21st verse? They're gonna read about a man with authority, this Jesus, who goes into a synagogue and with authority heals this man, exercises this demon. What if they learn that Jesus' ministry, if they keep reading and they learn that Jesus' ministry is not just for the powerful, that it's not limited to the kind of people that ordinarily get lifted up? What's going to happen if they keep reading and that happens? What if they keep reading and what if they get to the last chapter of the first gospel and they find Jesus himself being lifted up, lifted up out of the tomb and out of death? What is going to happen if they stop Believing in the kings and the dictators and the demagogues that can make no such claim. Not just the kings and the dictators and the demagogues that live outside of us. But the ones that live inside of us as well. What if the powers that be in me have to come to terms with the fact that I can't keep myself from sinking, that I can't hold it together? What if the powers that be in me have to come to terms with the fact that I can't help but being insensitive? What if the powers that be in me have to deal with the reality that Jesus is the only one with the power and authority to help me with the technique of living life and that I can't swim on my own because I really want to be able to swim on my own. But there's something in me that says, It has to come to terms with the reality that I can't. And I can't. And do you know how I know that? Because my irksome swim instructor told me that I can't swim on my own. He said, you're in the water. And you're trying to hold yourself up. Nate, and there's nothing there to hold on to. And then he said, let the water lift you up. Let the water lift you up. Bonhoeffer couldn't preach it any better. Because that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus, the living water, does this. Does it right here in the Gospel of Mark, the 31st verse, right here in the first chapter in the first gospel for the mother-in-law of his first disciple. It says, so he went to her and he took her hand and he helped her up. And then do you know what happens? It says, the fever left her, and she began to wait on them. I'm going to go ahead and make a guess. There are a few people here today ready for the fever to break. And you imagine what you could do if the fever broke? Let the water lift you up. We gather in life together not to check a box. We come to worship. We read scripture. We pray together. Sing. We sing, To God be the glory, great things He hath done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. We sing those words. Because over and against all claims that someone or something or some part of me has the power to do it better, in this place among these people, all of whom sinking to one extent or another, we let the water, the living water, lift us up. Amen.